Please. This is our podcast called Weird the Weird. Weird the Barclays. Weird the Barclays. We are weird. The conjunction gets me every time. We're the Barclays, where we talk about politics, Christianity, and culture. Today we are talking about climate, climate change. change. <laughs> we did not rehearse that. Mm-mm. And our evolving views on it, the, this is spurred somewhat by the heat dome, so-called heat dome. Well, it's not so, it's called that. <laughs> it's been very hot in the Pacific Northwest, from what Which I understand. unusual, right? Yeah, quite unusual. You know, people move there and live there for the cool summer breeze and cold winters. And it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's unusual, unusually hot. It prompts a lot of discussion about why, how, and will there be more of this? Probably everyone listening here is used to the, what, every few months something happens in the weather or news and there's a right big climate change the f- discussion. The fires on the West Coast last year, was it last year all the fires or the year before? Yes, there were big ones last year. There's always fires in the yeah, West Coast. Yeah, there's always fires. <laughs> you know, oh, there's more hurricanes or whatnot. And so this is actually one of my pet peeves that like every weather event is a climate change thing yes. when sometimes it's not. <laughs> right. But it's like, I think sometimes used by people to take it as an opportunity to try to, you know, get their point of view out there. Right. But in not every case, right? You know, there are weather patterns and things that happen that cause extreme weather before fossil fuels were mm-hmm. even, you know, being used by humans. So, Right. The, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but reading, I don't know, History books. It's so vague. It's almost meaningless. But, uh, like, even... Was in War and Peace? I mean, it's a novel. Yeah. Did they talk about... that? Well, and I, I remember, like, like prehistoric New Zealand. When I did my study abroad in New Zealand, ah, it was, like, okay. controlled burns burned, like, half of New Zealand. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, they're, like... Con- they're not controlled. They were uncontrolled oh, burns. okay. Um but they were part of kind of the environmental cycle of growth of this just happens in forests, right? New growth needs to have more space to grow controlled or Mm. um, humans do controlled burns, but uncontrolled burns by nature, like a, I don't know, a lightning strike takes out a whole forest and then new growth can come in. So it's kind of part of the natural cycle. Anyway, we we can get into that. I think so. You know, I mentioned our evolving views on this topic. Rachel, mm-hmm. you shared briefly yeah. about yours. Tell us more. So I think you know, like a lot of things, as I've gotten older, I've become more nuanced. <laughs> um, hopefully, that's a sign of wisdom. <laughs> Thirty years from now, <laughs> no. Um, no, I think. Let's hope. In college, right out of college, so you know, however long ago that was. 10 or so years ago, um, I, I think I was a climate denier. <laughs> that word is such <laughs> brave a of you to word. say it. It's brave of you to say I it. think, I think I was, and, um, I am that no longer. So it, it is, I think it's good to admit these things. So, so college Rachel would say <laughs> they're lying to us. Climate change is not happening at all, at all, at all, or, or sorry, man-made climate change. Got it. Yeah. So the, the climate is changing but but those are natural cycles i think now i would say 
yes, some of man's, you know, CO2 is contributing to some climate change. Hmm. I think college me probably would have been in that camp. I mean, this it was much more like red Republican, right. like go team in college. And even red Republicans, though, don't say that man-made emissions are not contributing anymore though so even the republican party has Uh, shifted from like the mid aughts yeah yeah and i mean it's just one of the so this is one aspect i want to just discuss and i was before this like looking at you know different pages about climate change it's just dizzying the amount of data and right sources and yeah and i think it's a politically charged topic like a lot of things at least in an American context. So just the fact that like you can probably guess someone's position on this if you know their political party registration. And to me, that just kind of throws some <laughs> dust in the air and it makes it, it confuses the, the topic. It kind of muddies the waters. It doesn't make it, you know, uh, impenetrable, but I think that's something worth considering. Totally. And even like, acknowledging in discussions that that is a big as i was thinking about this topic as we were preparing it's been so polarized that even you know you can't look at even different scientific findings are pretty nuanced and you know it's a pretty difficult um topic different scientists have different findings and it's even hard to find you know what data is hitting it on the mark? Because even I would think probably scientists would say like, we don't know exactly, you know, what percentage of the water is warming or the air is warming hmm. or seas rising or whatnot. And people, scientists probably disagree. Um, but it's funny in our political arguments, they're just so set in stone. Um, right. So I think there's a lot of nuance in it. But I think, um, so if let's just say, I think now as we've talked about with our evolution, most people agree there is some level of climate change happening that can be attributed to man-made emissions. Um, right. Most people agree with that. And so I think where the disagreements happen is what's to be done about that. And this has almost, I think, become uh, religious for some people in their um, agreements or disagreements. And um, so I think it'd be interesting to, for us to talk about what solutions are. So what hmm. what can be done about this? Um, and well, the degree to which, you know, you think the world is ending in five years and ending in a thousand years probably changes your solutions. So there yes. is agreement on that uh, is divisive. Right. And I guess to be clear, I think I think I'm in the same camp as you on this position. It just, yeah, it just it seems pretty. It's it's just hard to <laughs> uh, refute just the mountain of data and I mean just the graphs over and over, up, up, up. Temperatures like surface temperatures, and I've I've heard people talking about like, well, don't look at surface Earth surface temperatures. Like, like I think it's atmospheric temperatures and like. Oof. So, but anyway, like there is, and I read this, probably the most helpful book for me was this book by Patrick Michaels, Lukewarming, published by the Cato Institute. And this kind of gets uh, to what you were talking about of, okay, what is the reaction to the global warming data? Is it 
the <laughs> you know what was the documentary uh, al gore the al know. gore one you know I can't even remember it right yeah that was like 20 <laughs> years ago now wasn't it right but i remember watching that oh, in college uh inconvenient truth there we go and it's you know the graph graph and then wham the graph goes way up <laughs> and it's you know very somber and al gore is i think he's always somber is <laughs> you know we got to make drastic action now and uh that and there's this book out recently by michael schellenberger apocalypse never i think talking about this it's mm-hmm. on my shelf to read but this constant threat cycle of we don't you know take action within 10 years what is that like the green new deal proponents talk about that then right exactly then we're gonna the earth's gonna i don't know be a crusty like the moon (laughs) right right and they're like well and and here's what gets me is the like kind of extreme green new deal everyone needs to drive electric cars or ride a bike and you know we need to stop all coal production period all that um kind of talk uh, what bothers me is that it's like, well, this is the science and anyone who doesn't agree is wrong. Mm-hmm. When when you actually look at the science, regardless of like government mandates or programs or omissions or whatnot, uh, the Western Hemisphere is co- consistently declining in our CO2 demis- uh, emissions mm-hmm. because of our kind of breakthroughs and innovation and economic growth and well-being um, that, you know, you don't have to give Elon Musk a big, you know, government giveaway and, you know, cut out everything else. He's just innovating and learning how to make the Tesla, right? Yeah. So um, the kind of, if if we don't take this drastic government step, this is going to happen when naturally economic growth, market changes, mm-hmm. cultural changes have brought this on. Right. While denying that the biggest polluters, the ones who are really causing these huge CO2 emissions that are causing climate change are um, less developed countries that are catching up to where we are. So think China and India with huge populations that are still burning a lot of coal mm-hmm. um, because they are uh, they don't they're not as economically prosperous as we are yet they haven't caught up they yeah. started their industrial development later than us and so they're just burning a lot more coal and there's a lot more pollution from those countries so then you get into this question of if that is true which it is. <laughs> um, what do you do about these countries? It's it's also kind of in, unethical to say, well, you guys got to cut it all off because uh, cut off all you know fossil fuel production because it's not then giving their lower classes a chance to rise off of cheap, abundant fossil fuels that exist. Mm-hmm. And so you run into these kind of ethical questions of, well, we in the industrial West, you know, were allowed to thrive off these fossil fuels. This is what uh, fueled a lot of our economic growth and prosperity and got us to this point where we can now be earth conscious, economically, mm-hmm. or, you know, um, environmentally conscious right. because we have prosperity uh, but those nations are not there yet. Yeah, that kind of gets to the issue uh, of trade-offs. I think that's one part of the discussion that uh, often irks me because it's missing what, exactly what you said of what what does it mean when you when a country uh, activist group you know insists on following 
like say all wind or all solar well like there are there are trade-offs to that like they might be expensive now solar and wind have gotten cheaper as time has gone on right um the you mentioned technological innovation being a very important component and that truly is i mean uh you know uh nuclear power is often missing from discussions oh that's my other big pet peeve yeah i mean the, we we kind of know the answer like it's not and a, hydropower hydropower yeah well yeah i mean that people don't like dams though right the environmentalists hate the dams and so <laughs> they are against hydropower but this is an abundant cheap reliable source of energy in many parts of the world right but yeah, like, okay, we can put like hydropower and like nuclear though, or like, you know, split some atoms. Yes, there is waste, but just the amount of regulations to build a nuclear power plant, the stigma, the cultural fear around it. Right. Um, you know, you could trot out figures about, you know, people who die based on like coal-based pollution and mining versus nuclear power accidents. Uh it's. I think it's. It's. I would. I would argue we're way over cautious on nuclear power production. Right. Um. I mean, the uh, power, nuclear power plants are closing far, far faster in the U.S. than they're being constructed. Mm-hmm. I think that's a lot. A lot of that's due to the regulatory burden. Uh. So just the fact that like though that aspect's missing, and the one anecdote too that really stood out to me reading this book on textiles by Virginia Postrel. It's a great book. Mm-hmm. Um. She talks about how like ancient practices to get purple dye and yeah uh, you know currently some of this is done in india too but just the amount of water that had to be used to make these dyes just like you know tens of gallons as opposed to like modern methods where it's like a f- small fraction so like less water is being used thanks to technological innovation um, but it's just funny i was actually looking at the the green new deal and it talked about you know uh support local farming and like local farming uses way more energy it's much more inefficient <laughs> right uh there's and also missing from this innovation piece is often gmos like genetically modified organisms let's modify plants that are more resistant to disease and temperature fluctuations so that as climate changes plants are more resilient food sources are more resilient right. i think that's Less all famine. that's it's just like that the issues of trade-offs technological innovation are often missing from this bigger discussion i think yes which is gets me to kind of my bigger framework for thinking about this um which is uh from the economist julian simon who taylor's mm. former employer always gave a julian simon award yeah um and he had a book called the ultimate resource which is human ingenuity. Uh, human ingenuity is the ultimate resource, not yep. you know fossil fuels or yeah, whatever else. And in 1980, he made a bet with the biggest kind of population control proponent that said the population boom is going to decimate all our resources. 20 years from now, there's hmm. going to be famine and we're going to run out of all our resources and this kind of apocalypse catastrophe language that often comes from Mm. these kind of extreme environmental advocates. Um, And so Julian Simon made a bet with this kind of population control economist, Paul Ehrlich and said, Hey, if in 10 years that happens, you know, I'll give you $10,000. If we run out of you, Mm. you name the elements. If we run out of them, I'll make this bet with you. And then of course, Julian Simon won. Mm. And the problem was that 
the, uh, Paul Ehrlich was basing his assumptions that everything stayed the way it was in yep. 1980. Yep. He did not take into account human ingenuity changing rapidly. Yep. And I think that's the problem is a lot of these projections take the world if everything stayed as it was we projected that out 20 years then all of the islands are going to be underwater in this you know right and we just cannot foresee the technological innovation you know nobody probably foresaw jeff bezos going to space and (laughs) you know all the moon plants he's going to be growing there in 10 years (laughs) (laughs) it's another subject for another podcast interstellar colonization (laughs) Um, yeah, that's a great point. And so many discussions, it's just status quo thinking of nothing's going to change. This is, We have to lock things in right now and craft policies around what the world looks like right now. But as you say, with you know the growing amount of human beings in this earth, 7 billion of us, there's you know human minds and ingenuity is happening. And I think this kind of gets to maybe the Christian response mm-hmm. to this issue of... Uh, Mandate to care for the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, first chapters of Genesis, you know, where first humans are placed in a garden of God's creation and uh, the cultural mandate of be fruitful and multiply. And, you know, the first task given to Adam was to name the animals. So, mm-hmm. and even in the Levitical law in the Old Testament, to care for creation, to give the earth a rest every seven years. Hmm. I think it was every seven years. Uh, at, at regular intervals. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, just kind of woven into ethics, as it were. Right, right. But I think also a part of, if um, we're asking what should Christians think about this, the Christian ethics should also be about loving one's neighbor. Yeah, And that, this is a complicated question when it comes to that. It's not black and white, right? You can make the argument that, well, Hmm. loving your neighbor is, you know, making sure that, their home on the coast of Florida isn't flooded in 10 years because of sea level rising or whatever. Um, but there's also, you know, loving your neighbor is not uh, giving people in India not having a chance to rise because we cut off, you know, coal supply hmm. there and they don't have, you know, water and electricity in the slums because of hmm. it, right? Um hmm. And so it's a really complicated question. And I think this gets to kind of Taylor, what you were saying before about, well, when we're making these environmental policies, doing a true kind of trade-off cost benefit analysis about uh, human life, how jobs and well-being will be impacted as well as environmental impact and doing kind of this whole picture, whole life. That's a good point. Should we move to our media stinkers and thinkers, the segment of the show where we talk about a piece of public media and the culture that we think was great, a thinker, or was bad, or we just didn't like it, a stinker? Rachel, what's your stinker? So my stinker is this uh, month's edition of the Washingtonian Magazine, which we get every month for, (laughs) you know, events and things to do around town. Restaurant recommendations. Yeah, that's the best part, actually. And real estate stuff. I like the real estate stuff. Um, But my stinker is the cover story. It was give Larry Hogan a shot, or is it Larry Hogan shot? And this is the governor of Maryland. Shot? 
a shot to be to run for president. Oh, like it's his shot. <laughs> oh, okay. Like with a, but no it was funny because it had a shot glass with it. Uh, anyway, the whole article is about like, should Larry Hogan be the Republican nominee for president? Which is, you know, great. I would love it. He's a great guy. He cancer survivor, good guy, pretty good policies. Uh-huh. Um, I think he's like most popular, one of ranked most popular governor in America. Wow. He's a Republican governor of a blue state, Maryland, yeah. traditionally blue state. Okay. Um, but my thing is, it's just kind of so out of touch with what will likely happen. And I feel like Washingtonian <laughs> is so leads fairly far to the left on the spectrum. It's true. They're like, we're going to throw Republicans a bone. And look uh, at us. Yeah, look, nonpartisan. here's a Republican. <laughs> and like, it's just probably no chance it's going to happen, which, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I just thought like, okay, this just feels very like, this is why people say Washington is out of touch. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a good point. I think you're right. My stinker, I think, is the old curiosity shop, Charles Dickens. Oh. I I mean, I don't know. I have a hard time. You know, it's Charles Dickens. How can it stink? It was just so long. For those following along, Taylor is trying to read all of the Dickens no- novels. Yep. All of them. This is number four. In is it your order. least favorite of all? Yeah. I think, I mean, the last one was Nicholas Nickleby. That was kind of plodding. Uh, Oliver Twist, you know, it's Oliver Twist. Great. And then the first one, I think was my favorite so far. Uh, Pickwick Papers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I laughed a lot. But anyway, this one was just, yeah, it was rambly. It could have, he could have trimmed, you know, 200 pages. I get it. He wrote him as a serial, and your friends say he was paid by the word or something. Yeah, yeah. The like reason the is longer you so stretch long. it out, the more he gets paid. Exactly, because he was poor and he needed more money. I did read the Wikipedia entry on the book said that there was like a riot in the like Boston docks when the crowd learned that like the last installment was showing up. Wow. You know, from from Britain and or whatever. And huh. So it was like a huge hit at the time. And one reviewer is like, well, people, modern audiences don't like it because it was written for like his melodrama for the time in 1840, 1841. Huh. Um, so maybe that's why. But anyway, I'm glad I read it, but it was just kind of a slog. Uh, what is your thinker? My thinker? Yeah. Uh, I guess continuing on the, the book front, uh, short story, Ted Chang. I'm reading his collection of short sci- short science fiction stories. There's a is tongue twister. Is he modern? Yes. Uh-huh. This came out, uh, I'm not really sure, but it contains the specific short story I'd recommend as my thinker is uh, Stories of Your Life, uh, which is the short story that the movie Arrival was based on. Oh. With, what's her name? Amy Adams? Yes. <laughs> With the aliens and like the linguistic and like translating. I would really recommend, if you like the movie, I'd really recommend the short story. Oh. Because it kind of weaves in the the magic or whatever you call it, the mystery, the mysticism of the movie into the, like the telling of the story itself. And it's just much, I mean, the movie does it a bit, but like this, I think it makes it more stark when it's actually written out. I will not be reading it. As what? we've said before, I don't like space. But you like to ride And I don't like aliens. What about aliens on Earth? No. <laughs> <laughs> but you watched the movie. I don't want to think about aliens being but on Earth. But you watched the movie. Throw you a bone and it liked- was okay. <laughs> 
I don't like thinking about aliens here. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> my thinker is uh, my morning reading lately. I'm doing, a, I'm trying to do a chapter morning, long chapters. I don't quite get there. Of Hearing God by Dallas Willard. And I feel like every nice. morning I get like a nugget of gold. It's so good. It's very thought provoking. And um, I definitely recommend taking it slowly bit by bit because there's mm. a lot of good stuff in there. It's almost like uh, meditation in and of itself reading it. So wow. it's been very good. I had a friend who said he's reading it backwards <laughs> huh. and in various chunks. He must be very spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> I think he is. But I mean, it just bolsters your point. That's good. Mm -hmm. Good review. Well, thanks everyone for listening. This has been Where are the Barclays? See you next week. <laughs>